We continue walking with Jesus through Lent and arrive at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, where Jesus is doing some walking and teaching. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever did not, does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is able, not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or, or what king? Going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in my mid-20s, I attended a Pilates class, and this was not part of the normal routine, and quite frankly, I probably would have forgotten all about it. Had it not been for what this particular instructor, whom I didn't know, had never met, what she said to me at the end of the class. She looks at me and says, quite bluntly in front of the whole class, as everyone's kind of packing up, getting ready to go, so are you involved in any other sports? I like to run two or three times a week. She goes, you're, you're in your 20s now and you can get away with those tight hamstrings. If you don't start stretching every day, a few minutes every day on each hamstring, you will experience painful and severe injuries in your 30s, and you will no longer be able to run when you turn 40. <laughs> Silence. There was no ratcheting down the tenor. I'm just, I'm just trying to give you friendly advice. Or, or even like a softer, there's a good chance by the time you hit 40, you're going to have trouble running. No, she went with never run again, and even if it was rather tough, perhaps an exaggeration, boy did, she wake me up. If you don't hate your mother and father, wife, children, brothers, sisters, then you can't follow me. Talk about wake you up language. And since we know scripture has other words like honor your father and mother and love your neighbor, we're probably looking for Jesus to, you know, rein it in. <laughs> True, Jesus is, it seems, using some typical uh, Semitic hyperbole here, exaggeration, to make a significant point. And, and the word here for hate doesn't carry the, the connotations of uh, anger or bad emotive feelings that, that we attach to it. It's, it's a word that signified when there's a choice between two significant things, even good things, um, the one must be followed, take precedent, and the other must be hated, even if the very good thing that is taking second is your family, your tribe, your 
party, your people, Jesus, Jesus comes first. And if that isn't striking enough as we start to think through those implications, Jesus continues to press his hearers really throughout the whole passage. He, he then compares the consideration we should take in following him to that of, of, of building a tower. To, to the time that maybe you've taken uh, when, when, when you had all of your assets in front of you or, or your entire career or, or all of your savings and you sat down and, do I do this? Do, do, we, do we do this? Do we put it all in this bucket? Do we, do we go for the t- tower? Do we, right, that, that, that pit in your stomach sort of calculation as you consider all of what you're holding. Same with me, Jesus says, when we consider what it is to follow. Or again, he talks about something painfully familiar in our time, right? War. What king will not first uh, consider whether he's able with his 10,000 to oppose the other king who has 20,000? That, that pit in your stomach calculation as you weigh life and death and, and if you can handle what is before you, that gravity in the decision-making process, same with me, Jesus says. These are not trite comparisons Jesus chooses. And then, of course, in the litany of examples, Jesus puts rather plainly, those who do not carry their, their cross and follow me cannot be the, my disciples. Those who do not look upon the very real prospect of, of, of death in following the way of truth and love can't be my disciples. Why? Why such stark language? Hatred, cross-carrying, such challenging comparisons, the tower building, the, the war prepping. I mean, it, it's unsettling first to last. Of course, walk with Jesus long enough, and I think we come to find that that while we might prefer another way, Scripture reveals Jesus often comes with something of that Pilates instructor approach, a disorienting wake-up call to love and go where we need to go. A few years ago, I took a a preaching class with a Methodist pastor and bishop and former dean of uh, the chapel at Duke University, Will Willimon. And watching Duke continue to make its way through this tournament sort of brought this person and memory back to me. He, he told this story, and it's, it's recorded in a couple books as well that he's written. But when, when Willimon was dean of Duke Chapel, he got a call one year from a pretty upset parent. I hold you personally responsible for this, the parent began. Me? The father's daughter was just graduating from Duke and, and was going to go to grad school, but had just informed uh, the father she would be changing her plans, quote, throwing it all away, is how her father described it. Instead of going on to graduate school, she would be doing mission work with the Presbyterians in Haiti. <laughs> Isn't that absurd, the father shouted. She has a degree in mechanical engineering from Duke, and she's going to dig ditches in Haiti. Willimon said, well, I, I doubt she received much training in that in the engineering department, but uh, she sounds like she's probably a fast learner and will be fine with <laughs> figuring out the ditch digging. Father wasn't amused. Um, you, you really are completely irresponsible for, for having encouraged this in her. Me? What did I do? And father responds, 
you filled her head with all this religious stuff. She trusts you. That's why she's doing this. Williman cuts him off and says, weren't, weren't you the one that went and had her baptized? Yes. And, uh, and then didn't you read her Bible stories and take her to Sunday school and you let her go with the Presbyterians on some of those youth group mission trips? Yes. Willemann tells the story. He says, it's your fault she believes all this stuff. And she's gone throwing it away all on Jesus. You're the one that introduced her to Jesus, not me. And then the dad says, all we ever wanted her to be was a good Presbyterian. <laughs> and Willemann responds, sorry, you messed up and made a disciple. Is it discipleship to which we have said yes? And what shape does that take in our lives? There are a few moments of silence after that wake-up speech from the Pilates instructor. And before I could get any semblance of a response out, she had taken one of my legs. And with a few, within a few seconds had me stretching my hamstring in a way that brought about an excruciating amount of pain. Good pain. She knew what she was doing. That's her thing, but my gosh. Right? You all know if you've ever had a physical therapist or someone stretch a part of your body and they go to that spot that is uh, very much beyond what you really had internally named as the the possible limit. And then I'll never forget her words to me. She goes, this probably hurts. But that's why you're here. Two minutes of this on each leg every day. The Pilates instructor was not trying to wake me up to a a new cognitive understanding of the, the, the five philosophical tenets of what makes for good Pilates. Wasn't trying to wake me up to an insider debate on whether it's really stop Pilates or classical Pilates that's that's the one you want to go with. She was trying to wake me up to prioritizing a daily motion, a daily stretch. That's why you're here. I think this is why near the end of Jesus' hard message, he brings up this very tangible form of discipleship, a motion, a stretch, if you will. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. A lot we could say and unpack about that one sentence, but I think we look at the whole of Jesus' ministry. We don't see Jesus calling every disciple essentially to a vow of of poverty. There is something continued of of, uh, that semantic um, hyperbole. At the same time, these words are once more purposely hard-hitting, a wake-up call that make it clear that following Jesus entails an enacted reality, tangible reality that, 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 that costs something. Jesus is not trying to wake people up to sort of five key tenets of the faith or four essential doctrine that you really should download. He is seeking to wake people up to an ongoing motion, a stretch, an action. Much, much less believe all the right things and far more live in the way of Jesus. The wake-up language is meant to have us begin stretching again unto transformation. That's why you're here.
I wonder where are some of the outer limits of our comfort zone where a stretch or two is unfolding even this day. Where do we sense God calling us to stretch? Or, or, or maybe we can already name very well how we are mid-stretch this very moment. Is it in a relationship that needs some healing? Is it, is it an, an enemy? And we really, really don't want to stretch unto whatever it means to love thy enemy. Is it in our involvement and in, in, in sponsoring and caring for a, a, a refugee family or more moving to Texas? Is it in walking through the valley of the shadow of death with someone and for someone? Is it in our care for, our advocacy for, our, our youth who are, who are wrestling with, with anxiety or, or mental health or, or sexuality and, and and they ache to know that they belong. Is it in our prayers for and, and donations to those in Ukraine or those fleeing Ukraine or those receiving Ukrainians? Is it in our, at a very personal level, our reaching out for and, and even trusting in a counselor, a space to open unto truth and love? Is the stretch in seeking to show God's love and, and what is, quite frankly, a very stressful work or family or school context? If we are disciples of Jesus, the question is not, is a stretch unfolding for you, but rather, where is the stretch, the daily stretch even happening now for you, for us? Where is the Holy Spirit pushing beyond what we would have named as the limits of the comfort zone. And if the stretch is acute, if it's painful, if it's cross-bearing, well, what does a physical therapist always say at that point? Breathe. Breathe through it. Amen. I mean, is it any accident that not so long before Jesus is offering these very strong words about prioritizing him, carrying the cross, he's taught about prayer, about, about Holy Spirit breathing, breathing through the stretch, praying through the stretch. Remember the prayer we learned a couple weeks ago in worship, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Breathe out the brokenness. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Breathe through the stretch. That's what Jesus did, right? Jesus' priority was and it is us, and he was stretched impossibly upon the cross, making it clear just, just how far he would go to love us in this world amidst all of our sin and evil and, and betrayal. And, and upon that cross, in that impossible stretch, he breathed, right? With raw prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With forgiving prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. With trusting prayer, Father, into your hands, I commend myself. 
And what always happens eventually when you breathe through the impossible stretch? Something opens. There's a space where there, where there hadn't been. There's a new softness where, where it'd been a knot. There's a new freedom. And, and, and honestly, I actually think that is what Jesus' aim is in all of this. Do you remember Jesus' very first public words in the Gospel of Luke? He goes on to the scene for the first time and just names, here's what I'm going to do and here's what I'm all about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to the poor, to set the prisoners free, to proclaim freedom to the oppressed. Freedom sets the tone. And so when Jesus wakes us up to prioritizing him again and, and to make that priority clear by way of our action, motion, stretching, he's not most fundamentally trying to get us to a place where, yeah, we really feel the sacrifice again. Sure, we very well may. But with Jesus, every stretch of love, every stretch of faith, every stretch where we find the Spirit is working on us, it is ultimately always a stretch unto Freedom. Just breathe through it. Three days later from the calcified space of death itself came forth life. Amen.